0: The Bible is really one story. The Bible is the story of God's gracious self-disclosure to his creation. In, In fact, when you begin to look at the scriptures from that perspective, you will see that he reveals himself to us over and over again throughout the pages of scripture, and he does that in a particular way, namely through covenants. In fact, it is the very covenant structure that supports all of redemptive history now for the last several weeks we've been looking at the foundations of the church we talked about what it means to be in the service of the king as under shepherds and leaders we talked about what it means to be in the service of the church his body and bride today we talk about what it means to be in the service of the gospel and do we understand it do we preach it effectively and communicate it effectively Do we believe it in its truth and in its power and its present effect as well as its future benefits? In fact, if I were to say it this way, the gospel by definition is the covenantal love and law of God fulfilled in Christ for us. The gospel is the covenantal love and law of God fulfilled in Christ for us. Now, if we were to pull this statement apart, it will serve as basically an outline or an introduction. To begin with, we're going to talk about the covenants, then the love and law of God, and then the fulfillment that we have through Christ for us. So, to begin with, we need to understand that as a church, we are in fact stewards of this eternal gift. We are, we are stewards of the eternal gospel. We are in the service of the king, of the church, of the gospel. And when we gather then, it's really two things. It is an invitation to come to the feast. It's an invitation to the table for those who are searching. But it is also a gathering to enjoy the feast for those who have already found what they're looking for. Every time we gather, grace and forgiveness overwhelms us again. You go to a church. You come away feeling heavy and condemned then you're not at a church that is effectively communicating the gospel because the gospel is not there to tell you that you haven't been good enough this week and go do better. The gospel is there to tell you that you haven't done good enough this week, but that doesn't really matter because in the end, your goodness isn't going to be what gets you into the presence of God's glory forever. Your goodness is something that is relative. It comes and goes. There are good, weeks and bad. But your righteousness was given to you by somebody else. It is alien to you. It is a gift to you. It surrounds you, covers you, encases you, protects you, and is the only thing upon which you will be judged one day by a holy God. That's the essence of what we need to communicate every time we gather. If you've got that truth settled in your mind, then the ebbs and flows of your sanctification are going to be easier to handle. We do this by pointing each other back to the finished work of Christ and the present work of Christ and looking forward then to the return of Christ and the ultimate judgment when we will be evaluated based on his righteousness. He has accomplished redemptive history on the cross. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes even now and advocates for us his righteousness and he is prepared to return as the king to his kingdom. He is, even now, by the way, I might remind you, preventing any charge from being brought against us and any condemnation from being brought upon us. He is the one who stands then, therefore, in front of the very holy judgment seat of God, of the judge of the universe, and upon admission of any accusation against those who belong to him, he stands before the throne to say, no, that is though true, not appropriate nor admissible, because I have paid for that sin. Once and for all, past, present, and future. And therefore, there is no fear of condemnation, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to remind ourselves of that every time we gather because that's the essence and core and truth of what we preach. Now, why that emphasis? I'd argue this morning that we have lost that emphasis in many places where the gospel is thought to be preached. Because the gospel is not the minimum effective dose to get you saved and avoid hell but rather it is the absolute transforming power of the atonement that is working now in the life of those who are converted. There is a very present reality. There is present good news, not only future good news. It is not just a good news that says when you die you go to heaven. In fact, it is a present good news that says when you die you go to be with the Lord and then at the resurrection enjoy the new heavens and the new earth and his presence forever And so you look around and you see the opportunities to foreshadow that ultimate redemption. Now, it is the result of the covenant that God made and repeats with his creation that we're able to say that. So if we're going to look at the covenants, the law and love of God and the fulfillment through Christ for us, let's begin then by looking at those covenants. What am I talking about? When I say the word covenant, what do you think about Covenants, as it relates to the gospel and to the Bible, are really the support structure that hold up the whole arc of redemptive history. They're like the pillars that stretch up from the water to hold up the structure of the bridge. They are what keep everything elevated. They are what keep the bridge up and spanning the distance from one side to the other. The bridge from creation to fall to redemption to restoration and to the new creation, they're all resting on these eternal promises of God. And therefore, from before the foundation of the world, they are in place and they span from one to the other in the unfolding story of the Bible. From creation to fall to redemption to restoration. That is how we talk about redemptive history. That is biblical theology. That means that the Bible is not understood nor taught by simply extracting sections or chapters or paragraphs or verses or even words and depriving them of their context and then simply explaining them as if they were the result of some kind of biblical autopsy that had been done and they were removed from the subject and then laid out upon the tray for us to merely evaluate. No, they fit into the entire story and they are living and active and vital. And every aspect that we have talked about and every part of the story that we study is connected to every other part of the story. And I must confess to you that there are people that even in my own experience and and even from my own tribe, as it were, of where I come from and, and, and even people that I have spent a lot of time with earlier in my ministry that I think have a tendency towards that way of preaching and teaching. And my effort in this church and with you, this particular body, is to help us see... That these books are not just standalone pieces of literature, but they fit into the very beautiful divine revelation of God. Now, why is covenant key? Well, covenant is key for our second point because it outlines for us both the love and the law of God, the love and the law of God. And I confess to you from the beginning here, I, I am going to be a little bit more scripted today than normal, a little bit more tied to notes than normal, because I really want to make sure that I communicate this clearly and effectively to you. Because it may be a, a bit of a paradigm shift in your thinking of how you know and understand the word. But everything is based on both the love and the law of God. And the reason is because a covenant is something special. A covenant is just mere, not merely an agreement, it's not merely a promise. In fact, a covenant is both more loving and more legal than anything else that we experience. It is more loving and more legal than anything that we experience. The closest that we experience on earth would be that of a marriage. A marriage is a covenant. A marriage is a covenant, though, that is more loving than just a contract. You don't merely sign a contract with your spouse. You don't just go to a lawyer and sit down across the table from each other and stipulate the terms and the blessings and curses of this contract and then sign it and and walk away married. No, there's a ceremony, there's love involved, there's the exchanging of vows, there's the very precious nature of the fact that this reflects the love that Christ has for the church. It's way more than just a contract, it's a love relationship, it's a love story. But it is also much more legal than just a promise. Because there is, in fact, legal terms involved. As we said last week, it is not merely an arrangement or an agreement that is made between two people in the eyes of witnesses. But it is actually an agreement or a covenant made with God in the eyes of each other. You are taking the very risky step of saying to that person standing across from you that you are going to... Uphold your end of the covenant. And you are going to do that until death do you part. And in a marriage relationship, you say, I am going to hold up my side of this agreement, even if you don't. I'm going to hold up my side of the agreement because I love you, but I'm going to hold up my side of what is truly an agreement, a covenant, and a promise. And so the closest thing we have is marriage. More loving than a contract because there's real commitment to a person but more legal than a promise because there are real consequences if it's broken. So what do we mean specifically then here? What do we gain by this this covenantal love and law? How is it applied to us if, if we are by nature the ones that are incapable of keeping the law? I mean, how is it that we're able to enter into that kind of relationship with God if because of our weakness and our failure and our sin, there's no hope for us actually living up to it? What about his holiness? What about his justice? I mean, how could he possibly get into an agreement like that with us if he knows we're going to fail? How can God make real covenants with real consequences and still make room for us at the table? Well, that's what brings us to our third point and that is the fulfillment through Christ for us. It is true there are covenants. It is true they represent the true love and law of God. But it is equally true that Christ came, that he would fulfill every aspect of those covenants, and that he would do it for us, and through him, we would find redemption. Let's circle back to these covenants. What are they? I'm going to take a few moments to unpack them for you. Number one, there are sort of two types of covenants that theologians describe. One is theological covenants, and one is personal covenants. Theological, personal The theological covenants, they came into being in the 1500s when men like Calvin and Zwingli were writing against the theology of the Anabaptists, those who were baptizing people again, meaning those who did not believe infant baptism was sufficient to represent what baptism really meant. And as they wrote against them, they would say that these covenants, theological covenants, exist. The covenant of works, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace. And I say they're theological covenants because they're a way of understanding a theological system, but they don't actually show up in the Bible. And then there are the personal covenants. The covenant, you might say, that was made with Adam, or with Noah, or with Phineas and his descendants, or with David and Abraham and Moses. These are the covenants that are made with an individual. And of those individual covenants that were made, the five that really stand as the typical understanding of the pillars of redemptive history would be these. The covenant that was made with Abraham. The covenant that was made with Moses. The covenant that was made with David. And the new covenant that we find in Christ. Covenant was made with Abraham. Covenant that was made with Moses. Covenant that was made with David and the new covenant that we have in Christ. I'm going to take a few moments to describe these to you this morning and I hope that you will go away from here with a deeper appreciation for the fact that the gospel is the story that began back in Genesis 3 when the promise was made that there would come from the woman one who would step on the head of the serpent and crush its head that it is further described in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that the woman, Eve, will be saved in childbearing, that she will bear the child, that through the descendants of that child will one day bring the Messiah, who will crush the head of the serpent. That verse does not teach that women are somehow spiritually, mystically saved through bearing children or some other misunderstanding of the highest calling of women being wives and mothers, when in reality their highest calling is whatever God calls them to because they find their identity in him and nothing else. But that was for yesterday's men's seminar, which you all should have gone to if you were a man. But I digress. This story goes all the way back to the beginning and will press forward all the way until the end. Now to begin with, I want to set up with one of these, which is not really as much part of that arc of redemptive history, but it is one that I think is very important, and it shows the nature of the covenants, and this is the covenant that God made with Noah. In fact, in Genesis chapter 8 verses uh, 20 through chapter 9 verse 17, we have this story of the covenant that was made with Noah, and in verse... 11 of chapter 9 of the book of Genesis we read this, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now why is that significant? Significant because it proves God's unwillingness to allow the sinfulness of man to destroy the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, a command that he reiterates after the flood to Noah and his family. It proves that God's plan from the very beginning was that even though mankind became so wicked that he had to destroy almost all of them, he would not destroy them completely. That he would allow that remnant to continue and to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. And what I find so interesting, if you are to read that entire account, is that God says, I'm never again going to destroy the earth by flood. And so he puts in the sky his bow, he calls it. His bow, a rainbow as we know it. And he says that I put that in the sky to remind myself. He says, I put it there to remind myself, I will not ever do this again. These Amazing promises granted to us are not merely promises for our benefit, but they're actually promises that he gives to remind himself never again to do the destruction that he did to the earth through the flood. Now, we begin by looking at the ones that take on that theme, that story, that plan, and they begin with Abraham. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open to Genesis chapter 12. We're gonna be in two texts of scripture and what I'm gonna do is basically walk through these two texts as we talk about the Abrahamic covenant. It's the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, we see at the beginning of this chapter that God says, now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Out of nowhere, God makes this promise to Abram. Uh, Abram did not grow up in a Christian family. Abram had no reason, because of his education or his upbringing, to be selected by God because he was the choice candidate. Abram was chosen because of God's sovereignty, his election, It shows just like the election that he pours out upon uh, those whom he chooses to be his own, before the foundation of the world chooses them, not because of anything that they have done or will do. It is unconditional election. It is merely his choice. He does this with Abram, reflecting that in the relationship he has with him. He calls him and he says, out of nowhere, I'm going to give you a land and a people and a blessing, and I'm going to make you a blessing to those who you decide to bless. Then he makes a covenant with him. Look at Genesis 15. This is where it gets even more clear. Genesis 15. After some time has passed, he meets with Abram. And he says in chapter 15, verse 7, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur from the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. He identifies himself. It is me. It's the guy who did that. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It is during this time that God reveals himself. as a manifestation of God. And what he does is he begins to pass through the animals that Abram had been asked to prepare. Now, Now, Abram knew exactly what he was doing. You and I might not understand what this is. Abram knew exactly what he was doing. Because just prior to God's decision to put him to sleep, he had asked him to do this. He says, I want you to bring a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old, turtle doves and pigeons. And he said, I want you to take all of these, I want you to cut them in half and I want you to lay them side by side except for the birds. Abram falls asleep after trying to ward off the animals that were scavengers from landing on these carcasses and picking at them. And as he sleeps, God manifests himself, and he goes through this bloody trail of animals that have been cut in half. And what's astonishing about that is that in a normal treaty like this, it was never the person in the position of superiority that would go through They never even went through to sign this covenant. It was always the person who was in the inferior position. It was always the servant. It was always the slave. It was always the person who was going to owe the individual who was greater than them. But what does God do? God puts Abram to sleep. He couldn't go through even if he wanted to, even if he tried. And God himself moves through those animals, a vivid depiction stating the following, if I break my word, may this happen to me. But what's even more astonishing is that by putting Abram to sleep and going through, he goes through for Abram and effectively says, not only will this happen to me if I break the covenant, but may it happen to me if you break the covenant. And he went through there knowing that Abram would and that all of his descendants would and that one day he would need to send one of their own that he might die for them which is the beginning of the glimpse of the truth of the gospel. And so here in the midst of this darkness and the judgment that was all around God walks through alone and he cuts the covenant with Abram. He makes the promise for both. He would be killed if he breaks the covenant and he agrees to be killed if man won't keep the covenant. He made that promise knowing that man would fail and knowing that he'd have to rescue him from his own holy wrath by becoming man to die for man. Proves God's unmerited favor and unilateral choice of Israel through whom the Messiah would come. That's Moses, or that's uh, Abraham. How is this ratified? Look at Moses, he's the second covenant. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. This is where we have the giving of the law. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. God on Mount Sinai says this to Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The promise here extends not just to to Abraham and his descendants, but now to the whole nation of Israel and Moses as their representative. God says, keep this promise which I'm going to reveal to you in the Ten Commandments. And right before they go into the land, after their sin, their disobedience, their wanderings, after the covenant is reestablished with them, we see him stated again, Look at Deuteronomy 29. This is one of the most interesting statements in all of the old covenant about the testimony, God's faithfulness to his people. As you're finding your way there, Deuteronomy 29, I'll start reading in verse 10. He says, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you all may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord Yahweh, your God, is making with you today that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Just notice this for a moment, everybody. He calls them all together, not just the heads of the tribes, not just the leaders, not just the men, not just the women, not just the wives, not just the children, but also the slaves and the people that they had conquered and the aliens and he calls them all together and he says, I'm going to make this covenant with you all. It doesn't matter your position. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter where you stand and your station in life in terms of the socioeconomic status that you hold. He says, I am making this open to all of you And then he says the most astounding thing. Verse 14 and 15. It is not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before Yahweh our God and with whoever is not here with us today. How do you make a covenant with somebody who's not there Make a covenant with somebody who's not there by saying this covenant is going to apply to future generations and peoples who have yet to be introduced into it the way you all are who are standing here. Where do we learn about that? We learn about that in Romans 9 to 11. We learn about that as what it means for us Gentiles to be grafted into a covenant that was not originally intended for us but was ultimately intended for us. Grafted into a covenant relationship with God because we are among those who were not there, but were perceived and known by God because He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. You see, these covenants, they're not just Old Testament stories. These covenants are our story. And we're not going to understand the gospel if we don't understand the covenants. This creates a system then of daily sacrifices within the nation of Israel for the sole purpose of reminding the people that God's wrath must be satisfied. But it is also something that points to the one who would come and bear the wrath for all who put their trust in him. The next covenant is the one that actually takes the idea of the one who would come and tells us who it's going to be. He's going to be the son of David and so we're going to look at the Davidic covenant Look over at 2nd Samuel chapter 7. Now we could read this whole chapter this morning to get the context, but I would just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a few verses and hopefully that will help you see what's being taught. 2nd Samuel chapter 7. The books of Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, they weren't first and second in the Hebrew scriptures. They're first and second because they're so long they got divided into two scrolls, but they are just the accounts, the histories. In the case of Samuel, it's the the history that God picks up in the prophet Samuel who anoints King David. Kings, the story of those kings, Chronicles kind of circling back and covering all of the history of the monarchy and the kings that were established on earth, all of them pointing forward to the ultimate king, King Jesus. Second Samuel chapter 7 picking it up in verse 12 says this, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity I will correct him and with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Nathan promises David that there will become a reality that from him will come someone who is always on his throne, pointing forward to Christ. How do we know that this was fulfilled? Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. Luke chapter 1, 30 to 33, we have this testimony given to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The covenantal love and law of God manifest in his promise to Abraham, in his promise to Moses, in his promise to David, a guarantee of the perpetual reign of the descendants of David, ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah which leads us to the fourth covenant, the new covenant, and this is what we have in Christ. Back in Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 to 34, the promise is made that the sacrificial son would come and that through his death, he would write the law of God on the hearts of the people. And no book in the Bible explains that in more clarity than the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter eight. One of the reasons why the book of Hebrews has been the focus of study in our men's ministry and the focus of study in our women's Bible study as well, is that we are at a stage where we need to be reminded of everything the book of Hebrews teaches about Jesus Christ and his superiority over everything and everyone. Hebrews, beginning in chapter 8, really all the way through chapter 10, describe this for us, really extol the the virtues and superiority of Christ. I'll pick it up here in verse 7 of chapter 8. It begins by saying, For if that first covenant, speaking about the older covenants, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses, the covenant even of David, before it was fulfilled, if they were faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But, he says, we need a second one. We need a covenant that's not just going to be written on tablets of stone, but a covenant that's going to be written in your heart. That's why legalism doesn't work. He says, it's not about following some external law and rules and regulations. It's not about thinking, well, Christians are Christians because they don't do something. It's about looking instead to a law that is written not on stone or on paper, but on your heart, a transformed heart. And he goes on in Hebrews 8 to, tra- uh, to, uh, to quote Jeremiah 31. And then down in chapter, in verse 13, he summarizes by saying, in speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete and that is becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away. The external religious aspects of the old covenant were meant to point you to Christ. All of the sacrifices, all of the blood All of the cleansing, all the sprinkling, all the sanctifying, all the separation, the veil, the Holy of Holies, the fact that priests could only go into certain sections, and men into certain sections, and women into certain sections, and Jews into certain sections, a wall that was put up that separated Gentiles from even coming on to the Temple Mount, saying that if they did, they would have their own death coming to them and it would be their faults. All of that broken down, all of that torn to pieces. He says, all of that is past. All of that is vanishing away. Verse 9, chapter 9, verse 27 says this, And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that came judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That sacrifice he made was a sacrifice once and for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. That means that when somebody puts their faith in Christ, the sacrifice that he gave on the cross, the propitiation for their sin, covers all of their sin, past, present, future. You stand as a believer in an an avalanche of grace, in a constant perpetual waterfall of grace and forgiveness that covers everything. The great security that you have is that there will never be a moment in which you have unconfessed sin that could separate you from God. It has all been paid for. Whatever sin we confess is the simple result of us living out the rest of our years in a cursed world in a fallen body. We will still sin. John says if we deny it, we're liars. But the sin that we commit is a sin we confess, a sin we confess that God is both faithful and just to forgive. He is faithful, meaning he will do it, and he is just, meaning he can do it, because it's already ultimately been paid for. Now let me say something really quick, because I can't help but remember it. If you are uh, somebody who is maybe raised in fear that you might die with unconfessed sin that could separate you from God, I want to put your mind at ease today. If you're a young person listening to this and maybe it's a fear you had like I had when I was young, let me put your mind at ease. When I was a child, I was taught in Sunday school by somebody who I'm sure was very well-meaning, but just very wrong, that I had to constantly f- confess my sins every single morning and every single night to God because I didn't want to die with sin that hadn't been confessed. And I said, well, how do I know? Because I sin a lot. And she's like, I know, because you've been in my class. And I, I, I know. I said, I sin a lot. And, and she said, you just got to keep asking God to forgive you. And I said, well, what if I can't remember everything because I sin a lot and sometimes I can't remember all the sins I've committed. And I was genuinely concerned because I didn't want to one day stand before the Lord and have him reveal to me that there was a couple of sins that I'd forgotten uh, earlier and those were going to be held against me. And this person who, though well-intentioned, was heretical, said to me, Well, don't worry, you just need to keep praying that God will remind you. And I said, what if I can't remember? And in exasperation at the end, she said, well, the angels will remind you. And I remember coming away thinking, what are you talking about? Angels have never reminded me of anything. Listen, that's wrong. (laughs) Every sin that you've committed, everything that could ever separate you from God eternally because of its unholiness, and his holiness has been dealt with once and for all. If you put your faith in him, it's all covered. Anything that we bring before him, and there will be plenty. It's because of a tender conscience and a hatred towards the residual sin that is still there inside of us because of our fallen nature. That is why we read and learned in Romans chapter 8 that the groaning of the world for redemption is just like the groaning that goes on in us because we long to have the redemption not of our souls, they're already saved, but of our bodies. We long to have our bodies redeemed. Why? Because our bodies are still so sinful. And we know over and over again that we fail. So, if we look back at the Covenant made with Abraham, made clear in the covenant made with Moses, and brought into a kingdom context with David and fulfilled in Christ, we will see that it is him who ultimately proves that he is continually pouring out his love, covering us with his righteousness, which covers the law, and writing his law then on our hearts to sanctify us. He is constantly pouring out his love covering us with his righteousness and writing his law in our hearts. That's the grand story of redemptive history. That's the grand story of the gospel. Abraham died, but God fulfilled his promise, (laughs) turned Abraham into a nation. Moses died, but God fulfilled his promise, turned that nation into a kingdom. David died, but God fulfilled his promise, turning that kingdom into a family again, and then Christ dies That God's promise would be fulfilled and all the chosen ones become joint heirs with him in Christ forever, eagerly awaiting his return. You know, the great security that we have is that as believers, God holds us in his hand. And no one can ever remove you from his hand. But as you remember the fact that you are in his hand, remember that is the same hand that fell down on Calvary to crush the son so that you could be protected. Oh, the glorious fulfillment of all of the covenants is not only in the fact that we will one day be able to stand before the Lord righteous and holy and full obedience, but that he sent his son in order to purchase that obedience for us. By giving us not only the active, but the passive righteousness of Christ as well. Not only the righteousness that comes from who he is, but the righteousness that came from what he did. Born under the law and fulfilling the law perfectly and fulfilling all righteousness. Do you see that? His purposes then are to bless and to keep us even if it means he has to be cursed and forsaken. He is going to bless us and he's going to keep us because he allowed himself to be cursed and become the curse and be forsaken and be rejected. You see, nothing that we gain of the benefits were not at the cost of his expense. And the very essence of the great exchange of the gospel is that everything that we need to proclaim to people as being the benefits that we receive are paid for at the expense of the one who did it for us. You know, like that time when Moses was or when Abraham was put to sleep and and God walks through and takes on the promise of the curses if he doesn't uphold the covenant, this was what was fulfilled in Calvary. At Calvary, the darkness fell. At Calvary, Christ was torn. At Calvary, justice was served. At Calvary, everything that God said he would do in upholding Abraham's end of the bargain, even though he failed, was utterly and completely fulfilled. And therefore... The full payment for every sin, past, present, and future, was accomplished for all who would believe. This is why we read Galatians three ten to 14 earlier. Listen to it again. Because he became a curse for us so that he could be both the just and the justifier, so that he could be both faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. He fulfilled every condition of the law, because he couldn't let us off, and because his infinite love had to be poured out upon us unconditionally. You see that? That's what Deuteronomy 29 is talking about. We're the ones he made the covenant with even though we weren't there. Galatians 3, 14, listen to it again. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's the application? Let me give you four. Number one, we become ministers of the new covenant message. That's what we do here as a church. We are ministers of the new covenant message. 2 Corinthians 3.6 talks about that. It's the very core of what we do. It's why we were left here on earth. That's the message that we proclaim. That's what we teach. It's the purpose that we have until Christ returns. We preach Christ. We preach the new covenant. We preach the fact that Christ is the greater Adam. We saw that in Romans 5, that that Christ is the greater Noah. Forget being in a wooden box to save you. You are in Christ, which saves you, not just from a rainstorm, but from the ultimate raining down of the wrath of God. 1 Peter 3 tells us that. He is the greater Abraham. Abraham came out of Ur, so that the people could be in a better land. Christ him down from heaven to give people everything. And we see in John chapter 8 verses 56 to 58 that before Abraham was, he says, I am. He was there before Abraham. He is the greater Moses. Moses came out of Egypt. But here we know when Christ called back out of Egypt after his parents ran there in self-exile to escape the murderous reign of Herod. That the fulfillment of those promises were made real and visible. And that this greater law keeper died after having fulfilled everything. So that that very law of Moses and every sacrifice that he gave would be proven to point to him. He is the greater David. David, yes, the king, but Jesus, the Messiah. We see this in Matthew chapter 12. He is the fulfillment of everything that people thought David himself would be. And he comes from his line. And then finally Christ. Come down out of heaven. Sent as it were by the very love of God. That he might give his life a ransom for many. We preach the new covenant message. Secondly, we receive the merits of the new covenant sacrifice. We receive the merits of the new covenant sacrifice. That's what cleanses us. That's what makes us holy in the eyes of God. It's not just help that we have in in getting legalistic people to be more liberal or liberal people to be more legalistic. New covenant sacrifice does not help you to simply improve upon the system you've chosen to mark out your own self-righteousness. I mean, there are two types of people that are typically represented in the church. There, There are those that tend to be more legalistic. They're the rule followers. They're the, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Make a list, follow it. That makes God happy with me. It's all it takes. The rule followers. Some of you are rule followers. You love rules. I mean, you don't mind situations where there are lots of rules because rules work for you. You also feel very guilty when you break the rules. You condemn yourself when you break the rules. Well, Libyan condemnation is not consistent with the gospel. Then there's the other group. We'll call them the libertines or the liberals. They're the ones who don't like rules at all and don't live by them. They're the ones who like to make their own way. They're the ones that like to say, well, grace, 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 grace covers everything, so I can just live any way that I want. There's really no such thing as sanctification, no such thing as personal holiness. Um, It's pretty much a lawlessness, and they live in misery because their sin doesn't give them the satisfaction they thought that it would, and living in misery is not consistent with the gospel either. So what do you do for people that are living in misery because their sin doesn't satisfy them or living under this condemnation because they can't keep the rules? Do you help the rule followers to be more liberal? Say, here's the answer. Stop following the rules so much. Just break them once in a while. You just need a little dose of uh, rebellion. That'll help you. That'll straighten you out. That'll get you more towards the middle. Do we tell the liberals, you know, here's the thing. Generally, I get it. It's a party, but you know what? You're hurting yourself. Here's a couple little rules, just some guidelines. Just go this far and no farther, and then you'll be more towards the middle. Is that what we say? No. You know what they both need? The gospel. The gospel takes the liberal and it says that Christ cares about his law so much so that he sent his son and killed him in order that he could cover you with his righteousness. And you say to the legalist, It's not about trying to obey the law in your own strength because you never can. Because if you fail in even one, you've abandoned them all. And so you too need Christ's righteousness. And you tell both of them, it's the righteousness of Christ that you need. It's the righteousness of Christ that covers you. And it's the righteousness of Christ that's going to give you the peace and joy and rest you're seeking in your alternate paths. And so, by being proclaimers of a new covenant sacrifice, we are telling everybody that it is Christ who is perfect and that he gives that perfection to the believer whether they're striving for it or against it. Number three, we become members of the new covenant body. Members of the new covenant body. Application number one was we become ministers of the new covenant message. Number two, we receive the merits of the new covenant sacrifice. Number three, we become members of the new covenant body. This is the fellowship of the redeemed. This is what we celebrate even here in our local assembly. It's the fellowship of the redeemed. We don't forsake assembling together. We don't forsake smaller groups. We're part of a body that has already been perfected for all time. And so we help one another live out that reality in anticipation of fully realizing it. You see, the best way for you to thrive in a local church is to be surrounded by people that remind you you're righteous in the eyes of God and that they will hold you accountable, but that everything is going to be celebrated in the context of the finished work of Christ. That when you gather and you assemble together, you give each other the freedom to speak into your life, to challenge you, to provoke you to love and good deeds, but also to encourage you with the very profound message of the new covenant gospel, which is that you're part of a body that one day will be fully and completely redeemed and enjoy the glories of heaven forever with Christ. And number four, we model the new covenant love and law. We model the new covenant love and law. You see, the love of God is um, spread to the world who's watching us if we obey this faithfully. The law of Christ is fulfilled because it doesn't mean that the law of Christ was ignored means that we can really say to people, no, you can have your sins forgiven because your sins were forgiven. He doesn't merely pardon you and let you off and tell you that he's not going to really punish you after he said that he would. He says, no, far be it from that. In fact, I don't treat you like you've never sinned. I treat you like you have sinned, but I sent my son because of my love to pay the penalty of that sin and to clothe you in my righteousness if you put your faith in me. That's the love and the law functioning together in the fulfillment of Christ for us. Otherwise, all you're doing is holding out for another savior or trying to save yourself. In preparing the order of service this week, I came across a hymn that I had never heard of before. But upon reading it, I was convinced this was the best way to close our time in God's word. It's number 186 in the hymnals, and the name of the hymn is A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Let me read you these lyrics. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. I come with your righteousness on, my humble offering to bring. The judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Amen. Amen. The work which your goodness began, the arm of your strength will complete. Your promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. The future or things that are now, no power below or above, can make you your purpose forego or sever my soul from your love. My name from the palms of your hands, eternity will not erase impress on your heart it remains, in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end will endure until I bow down at your throne, forever and always secure, a debtor to mercy alone. We are in the service of that good news. Will you receive that love and that righteousness today? Will you hear and repent and believe the gospel of the covenantal love and law of God fulfilled in Christ for us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth revealed to us moment by moment, covenant by covenant, spanning age by age a plan that was ordained before the foundation of the world to be fully realized on Calvary when Christ fulfilled your law and your love and then hand it over to us, the messengers of that new covenant, that message to send to others. May today be a day of salvation for those who yet to put their faith in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.